Good morning again. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 2 this morning, and I'll give you a few moments to get there. And uh, I want to answer this question, and this is not a full answer. It's, it's a partial answer. Why was Jesus's incarnation imperative? Why was it necessary for Jesus to become man? Let's read God's word together. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Even at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise, and again I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we turn again to you and we do ask that you will be our teacher. Lord, I have words on a page and I do pray for unction. I pray for your spirit to change, to lead, to edit, to do whatever it is that you will, Lord, that your people might be built up. Thank you that we have a faithful and good high priest who has offered atonement for our sins. And thank you that the drops of blood that dripped on Golgotha also dripped in the heavenly temple. And through his sacrifice here, you have pardoned us there, and we are guilty no more. Thank you that Jesus' ministry right now is not one of continual offering, but of continual intercession, continual hearing, continual praying continual helping and so may that be something we not only know about but may we experience it i pray for jesus sake amen Amen. so um, have you ever wondered why children or the smallest of children uh, go through the why phase and they want to know why to everything and as adults it can it can be a little 
frustrating to say the least. But Alex Lickerman says that adults should pause because we too want to know why. We too wrestle with why all the time. And from the youngest of us to the oldest of us, the reason that we do that is because we are meaning-seeking creatures, not just children. And so when a boss changes your schedule unannounced, you want to know why. And when someone tells you they no longer want to date you, you want to know why. And when you see traffic in front of you that makes you 30 minutes late for your appointment, you want to know why. And if there are hundreds of people stampeding towards you, you're going to run, but you want to know why. Why are they running? We're meaning-seeking creatures. And if we want to know the why of earthly things around breakups, around changing our schedule or our job assignments, then it makes perfect sense that we ought to want to know why relating to spiritual things. And that's what the author of Hebrews is doing for us. He is accommodating us. We are meaning-seeking Christians. And one of the questions that we ought to be asking, that I'm sure you probably have asked, is why was the incarnation necessary? God can snap his fingers and do whatever God wants to do, but, but Hebrews actually says it was fitting. It actually says in verse 17 that he had to be made like us. And the answer is why? Max Licato says, for 33 years, Jesus would feel everything you and I have ever felt. He felt weak. He grew weary. He was afraid of failure. He got colds. He burped. He had body odor. His feelings got hurt. His feet got tired. He had headaches. To think of Jesus in such a light, it seems almost irreverent. It's not something we like to do. It's uncomfortable. It makes it much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation, clean up the manure from around the manger, wipe the sweat out of his eyes, pretend he never snored or blew his nose or hit his thumb with a hammer. There is something about keeping him divine that keeps him distant, packaged and predictable. He says, but don't do it. For heaven's sake, don't do it. Let him be as humanly as, as human as intended. Let him into the mire and muck of our world. For only when we let him in as human can he deliver you out as human. Why? For context, last week in Hebrews 1. The emphasis was on Jesus' divinity. In chapter 2, the emphasis is on his humanity. And it's important to hold these two truths, not in tension, but together. There are many in church history who have denied one or the other. Arianism was a heresy that denied the divinity of Jesus. Hebrews 1 says that's a lie. Hebrews 1 says he is the exact imprint of the nature of God. 
Hebrews 1 says he upholds the world by his power. Hebrews 1 says that he created all things. Hebrews 1 shows us that God the Father looks to God the Son and calls Jesus God and calls Jesus Lord. And so that heresy, anything out there that smells like Jesus is just a man, it's wrong. But there are also other heresies out there that Jesus is not a man. He just had the appearance of a man. And that's something called docetism. And Hebrews 2 says that also is a lie. And what Hebrews 2 does is it actually says that Jesus, verse 14, partook of flesh and blood. Verse 17, he was made like his brothers in every way. In fact, he actually quotes Psalm 8. And in Psalm 8, that's David's psalm that he's writing about humans. Who are we that you're mindful of us, the son of man that you care for us? You made us a little lower than angels. You crowned us with glory and honor. You've given us dominion over the work of your hands. And what the author of Hebrews does is tweak that a little bit. He actually says, notice what Hebrews says in verse 7. You made him, who is the him? Jesus, who is the creator of all things, for a little while lower than the angels. Look down at verse 9. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. So what Hebrews is doing is applying Psalm 8 to Jesus, and it's saying Jesus is creator. Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. But for a little while, for a little while, he was made lower than the angels. For a little while, he was like us. For a little while, he joined to his divinity, humanity, and they are joined together forevermore so that right now on the throne is not just the divine man. The one who is on the throne is the divine human, right? Bound up together in one. The question becomes why? Why did he have to take on flesh? Why was that the way? Why was it necessary that he breathe and he's the author of life? Why is it necessary that he has skin on and he's the giver of life? Hebrews 2 is going to answer some of those questions. And the first thing, the reason it was necessary is because we need a suffering pioneer that will lead us to glory. It's the first one. We need a suffering pioneer who will lead us to glory. I love verse 10. It says that it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now notice that perfection there is not Jesus's lack of moral perfection. The, the lack there is in order to be a suitable trailblazer and founder that God himself would have to step into our humanity and experience the sufferings that we experience. In that sense, Jesus was lacking. And to be our Messiah, our hero, our trailblazer, he had to come in this way. Now, notice God's goal for humans it says that it was fitting that he by whom all things exist to bring many sons to glory so that's the goal what does god want he wants to bring many sons to glory 
Now, who are the sons? You look down at verse 17, verse 16, and he tells you he doesn't help angels, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So what is the offspring of Abraham? It's not just Jews who are Jews by birth, because John says that we are saved not by the will of man, not by the will of the flesh, but by the spirit of God. And so the true offspring of Abraham can include Jews, but it also includes anyone, male, female, child, slave, black, white, mulatto, biracial, Asian, Korean. It doesn't matter. What makes us children of God is not our ethnicity. It's not our culture. It's, it's believing God just like Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as being righteous. And so the offspring of Abraham are those of us, regardless of who you are, who trust in God. That's who Jesus incarnated for, to help the offspring of Abraham. But for what reason? To bring you to glory. And that means something, doesn't it? It means right now we lack it. It means that we're all acutely aware of the ways that we fall short. We're all acquainted with our fallenness. There is something inside of our hearts that knows that we're not right and that we were made to behold him. We were made to love him with our heart and soul and mind and strength. We were made to behold his glory. We were made to reflect his glory and we deal with not measuring up all the time. It gnaws at us. And God's goal is to get you back to glory, to get you back. In, in David's words in Psalm 8, you made us, you gave us glory and honor. You put us, you've given us dominion over the work of your hands. And here's the thing. Two people had that perfectly and they lost it in the garden. And everyone born after them deals with the lack of glory and God's plan I want to get you back. I want to put you over. I'm going to let you rule and not just in a broken image of God way, but I mean in the fullness where you are beholding my glory and you are glorified. And here's the thing. We can't do it. We need a hero. We need a trailblazer. We need a founder. We need a champion. And that's what you could translate that word right there. Founder. You can translate it any of those ways. Pioneer, hero, champion, trailblazer. And here's what those words have in common. It is always someone who is at the tip of the spear. The one who is staring into the forest of trees that are unconquered. Who, the, the one who is, sees out in front of them a problem and we can't get there. But someone is able to chart a path. And, and what the author of Hebrews saying is the hero is Jesus. Now, when we use words like founder and pioneer and trailblazer, I'm like, man, I just don't use those words often. So I, I, I literally spent some time praying like, Lord, just make it plain to me. Let me bring it down to, to street level, right? And so providentially, Steve Lanier, he is uh, about to retire. And Steve came into my office this week 
And Steve gave me this pack, this, this, like this little package, and he's going through his notes, and he has old session minutes when Redeemer's vision was getting fleshed out. There are all kind of articles in here, like a bunch of articles, like the Northside Sun, I think that's what it is, and the Clarion Ledger. And one of the, art, and, and I literally sat for an hour and just started going through some of this stuff. And it, it was a walk down memory lane. And Mike Campbell, uh, our founding pastor, was interviewed. And Mike, these are Mike's words. And listen, listen to the words. The founders of Redeemer chose to be a church of intentional diversity, believing that the gospel leads us to come together. So I highlighted founder because that, 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 it was right there. And I kept reading and Bryant Taylor's quoted in this article. And Bryant says, the congregation is made up of people who are willing to sacrifice their traditions of worship in order to further the kingdom. And, and there it was, it hit me like a weight of bricks. Founders and sacrifice. They go hand in hand. So then I went home and I, I picked this little book up. And I'm a, it's written by a former Jackson State professor who was my soccer coach growing up, Dr. Uh, Ivory Phillips. And the book, the booklet is entitled Young Pele's, The Story of a Pioneering Black Championship Youth Soccer Group. Now, your pastor might be on this front page, right? <laughs> 12 years old with a high top fade. And you can see this, this team on both sides. It's all black. Now, back then, there were no black kids who played soccer. None. And so here we are, this all black soccer group from Jackson, Mississippi, like he wrote a book and then we won two state championships. And here's the thing, when you read the narrative, he begins to write about the suffering. He says, they put horse manure on the fields where the black boys was gonna be playing, right? He says, my boys had to play not only the guys on the field, they had to beat the refs, they had to beat the parents. And in the book, he actually has a section on the suffering. You can't pioneer nothing and don't endure no hardship. And then I came across another book. And it's about Jim Elliott. And he's called a trailblazing American missionary. And if you know Jim Elliott, he's a trailblazer. The gospel went to the Aka Indians. But you know the story, don't you? His wife, Elizabeth, became a widow because her husband was killed. Pioneer, founder, trailblazer, it's always suffering. And it always entails people behind them being blessed because they suffered. This church started with 90, and it's 1,100 of you. And we stand on the shoulders of founders who gave up a lot. Marlon Harrison 
a black boy from Jackson who played soccer and went to Louisville and played soccer and went and plays professionally. And you know what? There would be no Marlin if there was no this. The Aka Indians who came to faith in, in, in Jesus, there would be none if, if, if a trailblazer doesn't die. Take all of that and apply it to Jesus. We lack glory and we needed a hero, a champion, someone strong in battle, someone mighty, someone who would come and who would fight and who would walk into darkness and who would suffer and be crucified, who would lay his life down. Why? So that we could stand in his wake and go back home to glory. One author says, Jesus conquered death, returned to glory, and he left the back door open for you. We needed a hero, a founder, but that's not it. We also needed a supportive big brother who bullies the bully that torments you. All right? You need a big brother who bullies the bully who torments you. Hebrews 2 is about a bully. It's about a bully. And you see it, right? You see it right there in verse 15 where he talks about those to deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so death is all over this passage. And here's the thing. Bullying is bad. It's bad because bullies prey on the weak. It's bad because bullies will prey on the vulnerable. And what makes bullying so bad isn't just what happens in the moment. It's the terror that the bully might be coming around the corner tomorrow. Some of y'all know the name Debo and you see bully, right? The Truth has a new song called Nights in Atlanta. And it's been on repeat in my car. I see my kids laughing. <laughs> but here's what he writes. I was just a kid on the block, young black boy in the hood, catching grasshoppers in the lot, but getting bullied in the school. I was getting chased from the arcade. Philly kids thought it was cool. I lived around the corner from the projects, but I was scared to go to the pool. And so the song is about his childhood. And that's what this chapter is about. It's about the bully, and the bully is death. You may deny death. You may deny the devil's existence. The author of Hebrews does not. He says there's a bully out there, and he leaves you in lifelong slavery. And you can't exercise your health to immortality. You cannot exercise yourself to immortality. You cannot go vegan and go green and do gluten-free and all the other stuff that we kind of do right now because we want to be healthy. You're going to die. It is inevitable. And it is ugly. One of my friends is a pastor in Birmingham, and his mom died of brain cancer not long ago. 
and we were at our pastor's retreat, and it was his turn to share just about his life and about church and family, and, and he showed us this picture of his dad, and his dad is holding his mom's hand, and they are in the nursing home, and that was the last picture of his parents that he took, and his mom died not long after that, and he talked about death and the death rattle, her labored breathing, her dropping weight, her losing her mind, and he just broke out and cried. He says, man, I want to go home, but I I don't want to do that. Like that right there is hard to watch her suffer. Death is hard and it enslaves us. It, it, It imprisons us and it is a bully. And here's the thing about Hebrews 2. We got a bully, y'all, who bullies the bully. This book, this chapter has all types of familial language in it. Notice it says, verse 10, many sons. Verse 13, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook. And notice in verse 11, he says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And I will tell of your name to my brothers. In other words, we need a hero. We need a trailblazer. But then the author of Hebrews says, let me tell you who the trailblazing hero is. It's Jesus. And Jesus is now your brother. He is the older brother who bullies the neighborhood bully. Through his incarnation and your union with him, you have an older brother. And what he does is masterful. He actually looks at Isaiah 8 and Psalm 22 to set up the case. What's going on in Isaiah 8? The house of Jacob is being judged. God's face has been turned away from them. They look to the earth for help, but distress and darkness meets. And then one in their midst cries out, but I will wait for the Lord. I will hope for him. I and the children the Lord has given me. There is one person in all of Israel who stands up and says, I will not look to the earth. My help will come from the Lord. I will trust in him. And guess what? That's not you and me. The I there in Isaiah 8 is Jesus. And then he quotes Psalm 22. You know Psalm 22. That's the psalm that Matthew and Mark, uh, uh, they quote that of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All day long I cry out and you don't answer. All who seek me mock me. Bulls encompass me. They open their mouths like lion. I'm poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. And there's a turn. In verse 21 of Psalm 22, you have rescued me. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the congregation. And what the author of Hebrews is doing is saying Isaiah 8 and Psalm 22, it was about Jesus. You were without hope. And there was one who says, but I will trust him. And this one will trust him even on the cross where he is forsaken and bulls will encompass him. He will be thirsty. His bones will be broken. And then Hebrew says he survived 
because when he was raised, that is when he began to say, but I will proclaim your goodness to my brothers. The point, we're helpless and hopeless. And he trusted the Lord even unto death and through death brought life. Redeemer, we have an older sibling who is not like the ungodly older siblings we often know. Who don't want to spend time with younger siblings. Who makes new friends three months ago. And now they jettison the person that they have most in common in DNA than anyone else on the world. The Bible is about conflict between brothers, Cain and Abel. And what you have in Jesus is an older sibling who loves you immensely. He prefers you. He chooses you. He esteems you. And he will go fight for you, even if it means he dies in battle. You have it. The third reason and the final reason we needed the incarnation is because we have a sympathizing priest who has and will help you forever. The author of Hebrews introduces us to this priest in verse 17. And it's something that he doesn't stop talking about until the end of the book. In every chapter of Hebrews, with the exception of 11 and 12, Jesus' priestly ministry surfaces. Priests had to come from among the people. They never chose themselves. God chose them. They were covenant mediators between God and his covenant people. And they stood to sanctify the house of God to offer sacrificial blood on the altar for the people. And there's much that we could say about Jesus' priesthood, but this passage is concerned with two things, his sacrificial work and his sympathizing heart. The high priest would offer sacrifices first for himself and then for the people. And he would do this once a year. And he would go into the holies of holies and make atonement. And he had to do this year after year. And we believe that Jesus did not offer up the sacrifice of blood of goats, of bulls, or lambs. And he doesn't need to do it repeatedly. He did it once and for all by offering up himself. And here's the thing. He did not come to save angels. And that should marvel you. Because sinful angels did exactly what we did. They rebelled. And notice what it says in verse 16. It is not angels that Jesus comes to help, but you. Why would God not rescue angels who transgressed and then say, but I will rescue them who do? That is grace. And that is love. And that is the reason why when Jesus was condescending, he didn't become like an angel. He went lower and became like you and I. And what did he do? He was born to die. And I know we don't like to think 
about his death while we think about the incarnation. But they are inseparable. So when I was growing up, I, I really did like music. And I would listen to music all the time. And there was this kind of thing that would always happen where I would play a song like Fuji's, Killing Me Softly. Anybody remember that one? Show me my pain with... All right, I ain't going to sing it, right? It was jumping, right? 1996. Or Whitney Houston, I Will Always Love You, 1992, right? And then my, my, my parents' generation would always hit me with the, you know that ain't original, don't it? Like, what you mean that ain't original? This is the Fuji's. And my dad would say something like, well, you know, Roberta Flack sang that song in 1973. Nobody want to hear from no Roberta Flack, right? <laughs> and he pulled out the little album and there it was. You kind of hear the beat. And Whitney Houston, well, you know, Dolly Parton did that in 1974, 1982, and she got number one both decades. Nobody want to hear that. The remixes weren't better. The originals. You know, there's a hymn that we sing, and the name of it is, What Child Is This? And if you listen to the remix, it does something horrific to the original. Let me read you the original. This was in... 1865, what child is this laid to rest on Mary's lap sleeping, whom angels greet with anthem sweep while shepherds watch are keeping? And this is the chorus. This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste, bring him, Lord, the babe, the son of Mary. This is the second verse. Why he lies in such mean estate where ox and ass are feeding. Good Christians fear for sinners here. The silent word is pleading. Nails, spear, sharp, pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hell, hell, the word made flesh. The babe, the son of Mary. What the original did is what the remix did not do. The remix newer version of that song, it omitted the crucifixion. But if you go to the original, the original author put them together. He was born as babe and the next line and he will die as slave. You see? It's appropriate during Advent as we think about the incarnation, to think about his death as priest who will offer something better than goats and bulls. He's going to offer up himself. And here's something that we don't often think about. I often think about what does his incarnation mean for me? How do I benefit from it? The author of Hebrews spins that and says, what does the incarnation do to him? That feels kind of heretical to ask, right? But what did the incarnation do to Jesus? 
You know what, Redeemer? It enlarged his heart. He is not a high and mighty priest who only steps in to save and then to go back to sit at the right hand. In becoming like you and I, something happened to God. He began to experience temptation. He was tempted in every way like us, yet without sin. Why? So that he might be your faithful and sympathetic high priest. This means that your Messiah has walked a mile in your shoes. He knows what it's like when daddy walks out the door because his daddy turned his face away from him. He knows what it's like to have friends betray you because his friends betrayed him. He knows what it's like to be picked on. He knows what it's like to be bullied. He knows what it's like to be cast out and embarrassed in public. He knows what it's like to endure shame. He knows what it's like to, to wonder where next meal is coming from and if he has enough, right? He knows because he has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, all the things that we experience, you have a Messiah who has tasted the temptation, not the sin. And because of that, he is sympathetic. He is kind. He says, I get you. I understand. They may not understand, but I get you. I've walked a mile in your shoes. You are coming to someone who knows you. And because Jesus isn't offering sacrifices at the right hand of God right now, that's done. His ministry now is one of sympathy and empathy and listening and intercession and the giving of power to flee sin and the covering of grace when we do fall. We need a priest, a sympathetic priest, and you have it in Jesus. I don't know about you, y'all, but those three things are core needs. I want somebody to take me home safely. I want to be restored to glory. I want to be who God made me to be. I want to be able to die and look death in the face and not be afraid. I want my sin to be atoned for. And I want power to fleece him. And you know where you find all of that? In Jesus. You have it. And this information, saints, is not meant to check off a box so that we can argue with heretics. It's actually meant to move us to wonder and trust and love, and affection, and warmth, and hope, and joy. And it's yours. 
It's yours. Marvel in it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for making Christ to come. Thank you for sending him. Thank you, Jesus, for becoming like us in every way yet without sin. Thank you that you are a great older brother. You are our suffering trailblazer. You are our sympathetic high priest. And you promise to understand and to cover and to help us. May we marvel in that and enjoy you. And may it change us, I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.